Here's the subject for tonight. Is the Bible reliable history? We're going to use similar evidence to what we used in the resurrection. We're going to use supporting eyewitness and corroborating physical evidence and frankly some circumstantial evidence to show that your Bible is reliable. Uh, one of the things I'd appreciate prayer on is I'm trying to do this project where I'm taking every chapter of the Bible and look at extra biblical that confirms the, at least something that's talked about in that chapter. And so far I've done the whole book of Acts, uh, Luke, and Exodus, and most of Genesis, trying to do it for every chapter and some major under it. We'll get there probably in 10 or 12 years, but um, hopefully quicker than that. But, if you could, but anyway, it's this type of thing. So let me show you something. How do investigators solve a case? The most popular programs on TV right now are these CSI programs. You know, these NCIS programs, the law, you know, it used to be law and order, right? But um, if you think about the basic premise, uh, my office was in Brooklyn for a while, and right around the block were these brownstones, and one of the young ladies who uh, worked for me, her next door neighbor was a producer on law and order. And he was telling her, if you know all the law and order programs and all these CIS, CSI programs, they all follow the same basic pattern. You have a crime committed, and then you have investigators who try to solve the crime, and they generally do the same thing. They're looking for eyewitness testimony. They're looking for corroborating physical evidence and some circumstantial evidence to help them solve it. And really what they're trying to do is determine if uh, a particular scenario is true. Um, so I want to do the same thing with the Bible. And for the sake of tonight, I thought we might have fun and do it with the book of Exodus. Um, is there supporting eyewitness accounts that verify the things that show up in the book of Exodus? And by the way, we're not going to look at the Bible. I'm going to look at sources outside of the Bible to show that the Bible is accurate. Confirmatory evidence from supporting eyewitnesses who weren't mentioned in the Bible. So we're going to look at what Egyptians have to say about the events in the book of Exodus. Because believe it or not, we know sources. We have sources now of what the Egyptians were saying about these events. Um, we're going to look at some interesting physical evidence too as we go through this, if we have time. Um, so let me kind of set this up by discussing this guy. Who is this guy? George Washington, right? Our founding father, first president of the United States, uh, single most important person in the founding of the nation. How do you know he ever existed? So you can't say, well, we got photographs of him, right? Because photography didn't exist yet. Photography didn't come on the scene until about the 1820s when the French, a French chemist uh, uh, developed photography. By the way, you know what the first photograph in the history of the world was? It was a picture of a pigeon coop. I don't know why he chose that other than it was stationary and you had, back then you had to let the photograph expose for eight hours. Um, but how do you know George Washington existed if we don't have any photos of him? Well, you look at the same three types of evidence. You look at eyewitness testimony. Were there people alive in the 1770s who wrote about George Washington? Sure enough, there are. Who are some of the best historians to write about George Washington? It's the British. They never argued that he didn't exist. They just argued that they hate him because he's rebelling against them. How do you know George Washington existed? You look at corroborating physical evidence. I can take you up to the University of Maryland. You can see his false teeth. Interesting corroborating physical evidence. And by the way, what's some great circumstantial evidence that George Washington existed? The United States of America's existence is great circumstantial evidence. So 
you do the same type of thing. We, we go through this. Nobody doubts that George Washington existed, and they shouldn't, or they should be in a loony bin. Um, and you do the same thing with the Bible. So let's set up the book of Exodus. We're going to look at supporting eyewitness testimony, corroborating physical evidence, and compelling circumstantial evidence. We know that the Exodus took place, according to the Bible, in 1446 B.C. We had a professor named Dr. Dave, and you had to do this walkthrough. And you had to say that the Exodus occurred in 1446 B.C. If that's the date you choose for the Exodus, you'd be right. And the reason we can say definitively that the Exodus, the leaving of Egypt, took place this year, 1446-1445, is because of 1 Kings 6, verse 1. In that verse... Um, the scripture says that Solomon to, begins to build the temple in the fourth year of his reign, 480 years after the children of Israel left Egypt. Well, archaeology has long since established that the temple began to be built in 966 B.C. You go back 480 years earlier, that puts you in 1446 B.C. So let's see what we can find from writings that date back to around 1446 B.C. to see if there's any confirmatory evidence to the ten plagues that befell Egypt, to the parting of the Red Sea, to the conquest that took place subsequent to that. By the way, here's the route that I think the uh, parting of the Red Sea took. There's a kind of land bridge there. This is the Gulf of Suez. This is the Gulf of Aqaba. The past 15 years or so, there's been all this flurry thinking that the parting of the Red Sea actually took place over here. It's not good archaeology. Um, there's reasons we won't go in for that, but the, the Mount Sinai is somewhere here in the Sinai Peninsula. It's not in Saudi Arabia for reasons I won't go into, but, but that's probably where the parting of the Red Sea took place. Um, so, let's look at some things. Biblical assertion is that Egypt suffered ten miraculous plagues brought on by God to free the Israelites. Exodus 3, verse 20, I'll stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst, and after that, he will let you go. Pharaoh will let you go. So the biblical claim to be tested is that there were ten plagues that befell Egypt. When did this occur? We already established based off the biblical record and the building of the temple. It would have been 480 years previous or 1446 B.C. Where did this occur? Egypt. And who was involved? The Egyptians and the Israelites. The evidence has been mounting, particularly in the past five years, but even in the past century, that this is an absolute historical event. And of course, we know it's an historical event because it's in the Bible, which is God's Word, which has no errors in it. But for the skeptic outside of us, who wants more proof than just that, that's what we're doing tonight. So, this is called the Ipawar Papyrus. Anybody ever hear of it before? Okay, the Ipawar Papyrus. This is located in the National Archaeological Museum in Leiden, Netherlands. And it dates back at least to the 1300s B.C. There's reason to believe that it goes back a little bit further, but we can get within 50 years of the Exodus with this document that was discovered in Egypt. The papyrus was written by an Egyptian named Ipawar, and it's a satirical writing. Basically, he's complaining about Egypt's government, and he talks about what had just befallen the Egyptian nation. So let me show you some of the things that the Ipawar papyrus talks about as having a befall in the Egyptian nation. By the way, he describes violent upheavals in Egypt, starvation, drought, and he mentions the escape of the slaves. And he complains that they've escaped with the wealth of Egypt and Egypt's leadership shouldn't have stopped that, or should have stopped it. 
This is in Ippowar Papyrus, chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Plague is throughout the land, blood is everywhere. In verse 10 of that same chapter, he says the river, they just call the Nile the river, the river is blood, man shrank from tasting and thirst for water. Well, sure enough, we know that the Bible says one of the plagues was what? Water was turned into blood. You've got an Egyptian document within a generation, and again, probably goes further back, um, that's testifying to the fact that something befell Egypt that caused the Nile to turn into blood. This is not a biblical source. It's an extra-biblical Egyptian source testifying to this plague. Uh, chapter 9, verse 23 of the Ippopower Papyrus says, Fire ran all along the ground. There was hail and fire mingled with hail. Forsooth, or help us, gates, columns, and walls are consumed by fire. And sure enough, we know one of the plagues was what? Plague of hail and fire. Plague of darkness in Ippowar, uh, chapter 9, verse 11. 9, 11, the land is without light. Plague upon the Egyptian livestock. Remember, in these chapters, he's talking about all these bad things that are befalling Egypt. It says, all animals, their hearts weep, cattle moan. We think he's the reference there to the plague that befell the livestock of the Egyptians. And finally, the plague of the firstborn. He who places his brother in the ground is everywhere. It is groaning that is throughout the land mingled with lamentations. Forsooth, or help us, the children of the princes are dashed against the walls. Help us, the children of the princes are cast out in the streets. And in context, it's their bodies. Um, Ippowar Papyrus. Eyewitness testimony. Extra-biblical confirmatory evidence that um, the plagues befell Egypt. This is even a better one. This is about to hit the presses. This has been talked about for about five years. A Cal Poly, uh, I'm sorry, a University of California Berkeley archaeologist by the name of Brad Sparks uh, has done all this research on this thing called the Amduat. This first shows up in the tomb of Amenhotep II. By the way, if you want to know who the pharaoh of the Exodus is, it's Amenhotep II. He's the pharaoh on the throne when Moses is leaving Egypt. And uh, this is his burial chamber. And for about 100 years, we've known of its existence. But um, recently, we've found kind of a key to better understand what's going on with the Amduat. But the Amduat is, if you do an internet search on Amduat, you'll read that most Egyptologists consider this to be a, uh, a prophecy about the destruction of Egypt at the end of time. And so Egyptologists have generally said, yeah, this is a prophecy. All these strange things seem to happen to Egypt at the end of time. Well, Brad Sparks has done some research. And again, this is about to go to full, full publication, University of California, Berkeley. I know about this because of the archaeology boards I'm on. But you'll even see some of this on the Internet as well, that there's so many parallels between what's described as the destruction of mankind at the time of the end um, and what shows up in the book of Exodus that Brad Sparks has said, this is not a future prophecy. This is a reckoning of something that befell Egypt in the past. In fact, we know from the study of these tombs that this Amduat, this elaborate wall mural, shows up on the next 20 pharaohs' to, uh, tombs. And basically the idea was that um, it's a story that the new pharaoh of Egypt would be told as he's taking power at the burial of, his, of the previous uh, the predecessor. But here, here's some of the things that um, show up in this Amduat. It talks about uh, the Nile turning into blood. It talks about at the end of time, according to this, that a plague of frogs would befall Egypt, that a plague of lice, a plague of flies upon the livestock, that the people would get boils upon their skins, uh, skin,
that hail and fire would fall from heaven, there would be a locust infestation, that the sun would be turned dark for three days, and that there would be death upon the older sons. So Brad Sparks says, boy, that doesn't sound like it's talking about what's going to happen. That sounds to me like it's talking about what has happened in the past. We're, trans we're looking at this the wrong way. Um, I'll show you something else that shows up in this thing in a second, but we'll come back to that. By the way, the thing that's disturbing about the Amduat to Egyptologists is they're fighting a god in the story. You know what the name of the god is that they're fighting? Yahweh. And Yahweh is led by a servant who they call the leader of the rebels, whose name is Moshe. Kind of real similar, right? When I show you how they depict Moshe, it's going to be, you'll, you'll find it very interesting. There's a certain way they depict Moshe. You saw this last night. But um, anyway, let's come back to the Amduat a little bit later. So this is all physical evidence. You can go to this day and see this wall mural. This is, uh, I call this circumstantial evidence. Everybody goes to Egypt, they want to go see the Sphinx, right? From a biblical student standpoint, the most important thing is not the Sphinx at all, but it's what's found between his paws. There's a stella or an inscription found between his paws. There it is. Now there's a fake replica of it. This is the real thing. Pretty well maintained. You can see this in the Egyptian Museum. It's basically the dream stella of Thutmose IV. Now I want you to ask you something. Thutmose IV is the son of Amenhotep II. Amenhotep II is the pharaoh of the Exodus. Thutmose IV replaces Amenhotep II on the throne of Egypt. What happened to Thutmose IV's older brother, according to the Bible? Right. Plague of the firstborn, according to the scripture, killed Pharaoh's firstborn son. So Thutmose IV, in his dream Stella, he recounts how he came to power in Egypt. And one of the things he says that's so fascinating to Egyptologists is this. It's just a subtle thing. But he says, I never expected to become throne, uh, Pharaoh over Egypt. And Egyptologists have said, it's clear he wasn't the oldest son. Because if he was the oldest son, from the moment he's old enough to understand, what would he have understood right off the bat? One day daddy's job is going to be yours. So Egyptologists say Thutmose IV was not the oldest son. He was a younger son. It's great circumstantial evidence confirming your Bible. By the way, I throw this one out there. Um, this is a Dr. Daveism. Uh, I wouldn't fall on the sword for this next one. But it seems that the origin of Friday the 13th traces all the way back to Egypt in the mid-1400s. They're the first ones who talk about Friday the 13th being a wicked, evil day. Now remember, Jewish reckoning, Hebrew reckoning, Friday night starts what? Saturday morning. So Nisan 14 is when the, ex when the plague of the firstborn would have taken place. But in the Egyptian calendar, it's still Friday night, the 13th of the month. So I just find it interesting. It's, I wouldn't fall on the sword for this one, but it may be that the legacy of Friday the 13th being a bad luck day may be a vestige in culture and a vestige in society to uh, a distant memory of the plague of the firstborn. Now, you're fortunate. Just tuck that away. It's, I wouldn't... Did you Rob Sullivan said Friday the 13th is... It's in the Bible, you know. I don't really want that. Um, but fortunately, we have photographs of these events. And uh, you want to see uh, the uh, Nile being turned into blood? We have a photograph of it. 
By the way, this must be Moses, right? Because wasn't it Aaron who dipped the rod into the water? Aaron is clearly bald. He's got some kind of tumor on his head. Um, here's the Nile turning into blood. There you go. And of course, what happened to the fish in the Nile? They die. Then, of course, now we, we were fortunate that even though photography didn't exist, somehow we went back in time and took photographs of the plague of frogs. Pests they are. And we were able to find the plague of lice. Plague of flies. That is the worst one. <laughs> they must not have been able to get the flies with their wings. I, I don't know, the Lego Bible here. Um, plague of, uh, upon the livestock. Boils. Ready for the plague of boils? Uh, plague of uh, hail and fire. Now, truly, this is the worst Lego Bible example of how to depict a biblical scene. This is the plague of locusts. Let's see if you can figure out what this thing is. Aren't they handguns? <laughs> Want to see the plague of darkness? <laughs> plague of the firstborn. Yeah. All right. Parting of the Red Sea. Biblical assertion is that a parting of the Red Sea took place that allowed Israel to escape. The Red Sea later enclosed on the pursuing Egyptian army, resulting in their drowning. Uh, Exodus 14, verse 27. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth, while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. So the claim to be tested. What happened? The Red Sea was divided, and the Egyptian army drowned. When did this occur? And we think it's about 1446 or 1445 B.C. Uh, where did this occur? The Red Sea. Don't go for that nonsense about it being the Reed Sea, by the way, if you study this kind of thing. Um, I think it's the Red Sea, not the Reed Sea. Yam Suf. Uh, who was involved the Egyptian army? So do we have any evidence for this? I'll tell you a little story. The number one trading partner for Egypt in the 1440s BC, really throughout the 15th century and the 14th century, the number one trading partner Egypt has in the world is the Mycenaeans. The Mycenaeans become the ancestors for the Greeks. And uh, the Egyptians would write about the Mycenaeans, talk about egotistical, you know what the Egyptians used to say? The only other people civilized on earth besides ourselves are the Mycenaeans. Really full of themselves, you know. Um, and the Mycenaeans felt that way about the Egyptians. In fact, they would have funeral areas dedicated to each other's dignitaries. Uh, in Mycenae, we found a, a graveyard that was dedicated to Egyptian dignitaries. That's how good allies these countries were. Um, it's the Egyptian funeral area in Mycenae that's really caused a stir a couple of years back because these slates were found. They're like tombstone slabs. By the way, interesting thing about this is the Mycenaeans seem to bury um, there are people standing up. It's, it's an interesting thing. Um, and uh, they had a whole kind of uh, ambassador corps that lived in Mycenae, Egyptian ambassadors, Egyptian dignitaries that lived in, in Mycenae, and they would be buried in this, uh, in this area. Anyway, this one seems to be telling the story about an event that took place in Egypt. In the first scene, and this is debated, um, 
But the first scene, it looks like an Egyptian charioteer is chasing a guy with a staff. By the way, the symbol here that's used is a, a Mycenaean symbol for water. This has been debated and studied, but pretty much archaeologists have settled. Yeah, this is their depiction of water, and this is their depiction of whirlpools. So at a certain point, the charioteer is chasing the guy with the staff. He keeps chasing the guy with the staff, and there seems to be a separation of the water. You have water up here, and then you have water down here. It seems to be in some kind of whirlpool formation. And now the guy with the staff is standing on a rock, and he's looking back at the charioteer that's chasing him. In the last scene, the guy with the staff is now facing uh, the guy on the chariot, and these two, you know, here it's a horse. Here it's kind of confusing because it almost looks like they're starting to turn into lions. I don't quite get it. But now the water has enclosed back on top of the charioteer. He's thrown off his chariot, but the guy is still standing solidly on the rock. Um, so some archaeologists have recently come around to the thought that this may be a depiction of events they're hearing about in Egypt. I don't know. This one I do know, though. The Amduat gives a very clear depiction about what happened to the Egyptian army at the time of the destruction of mankind. And here's the slab of the Amduat that talks about the Egyptian army chasing Moshe. By the way, Moshe is depicted as a staff with a serpent's head. And in the scene, you have the water dividing, which is, we think it's a depiction of the Red Sea. And by the way, here is the entrance into death. And in the next scene, you see Pharaoh looking down and scorned or sorrowful at his army that is now drowned in these waters that they've closed back upon themselves. This is what Brad Sparks has concluded. Interesting, right? Again, it's a wall mural that dates back to the 1400s B.C. Here's another bit of interesting circumstantial evidence. Thutmose IV, so we said Amenhotep II is the pharaoh of the Exodus. The son that replaces him is Thutmose IV. Thutmose IV's son is Amenhotep III, named for his grandfather. And here's where things get really wacky. For the only time in ancient Egypt's history, Egypt does a left turn and they become monotheistic. In fact, Amenhotep III and Queen Tai, um, they're really considered to be forward thinkers in ancient Egyptology. They're two generations removed from the Exodus. It's his father that's Thutmose IV that's between the Sphinx. And for some reason, Egyptologists trying to get their minds around this, these two become rulers of Egypt and they say there's no such thing as all these gods. There's only one god. Now we don't think they came to faith in the true god, but at least they started to acknowledge that there was clearly only one god out there, not all these other gods. It's interesting circumstantial evidence. What happened in Egypt's history that caused them to change like that? We'd say it's the full effects of what took place. By the way, Ippowar, if he only goes back to the late 1300s, he's writing around the time that this guy's on the throne. Um, you can see this in the Egyptian Museum, by the way, in Cairo. By the way, remember all the uh, uprising in um, the Arab Spring? You see Tahrir Square where all those demonstrations were taking place. You can pack thousands and thousands of people there and you'd see people getting rocks thrown at them and all that stuff. Just to give you an idea of how scary that was, all the cameras that are watching what was going on in the square are on top of the Cairo Museum. The Cairo Museum is where all these artifacts were located. All these artifacts that speak to the Bible, all these artifacts that speak to ancient Egypt's history. It was a disaster for Egypt. 
They lost hundreds and hundreds of precious artifacts. Now, they since have been able to recover about 90% of them. And we think all the ones that have a biblical ramification are back and intact. But um, anyway, just know when you're looking at Tahrir Square, almost always the cameras are affixed atop the museum. Oh, fortunately, we have some uh, photos of the parting of the Red Sea. <clears throat> and there go the Israelites. He looks awful happy, doesn't he? Or she? Is that a boy or a girl? This is a girl. They're all happy as they're walking through. Happy they're getting out of Egypt. Yet they're being chased by the Egyptian army. He looks pretty mad, doesn't he? Can you imagine those Egyptian charioteers going through the Red Sea? Thinking, what in the world are we doing? Right? Get me out of here. Next one. Anybody ever see the movie um, Lawrence of Arabia? Yeah, Lawrence of Arabia. It's a good movie. Well, when he first meets up and he starts to form his armies up to get ready to attack uh, the Turks, the Ottoman Turks down at Aqaba, the place where they meet up is called Wadi El Rum or Wadi Rum in Jordan. Um, that very spot, those canyons where that army forms up in World War I, is the place where Moses lifted up the bronze serpent. Right where Lawrence of Arabia is gathering his forces is the very spot, the very canyon that Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Numbers 21.8 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. Did this event really take place? What happened? The serpent was lifted on a pole for healing. When did this occur? Late 1400s. Where did this occur? Wilderness near Edom, today's Jordan, Wadi Elram. Who was involved? The Israelites. Now let me present something to you that um, historians, well you can just check this out. Do you ever realize that our medical symbols today are a distant memory of this event? Now, historians will say, well, the serpents on the pole, the two serpents on the pole, are a reference to the Greek god Asclepia, or Asclepian. Um, and they'll say, oh, clearly the serpent on the pole, it was the depiction of Asclepian, and Asclepian was the medical god for the Greeks. But we actually think, and good archaeologists have done research on this, and say, no, 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 no. It's only about two or 300 B.C. that you start seeing two serpents on the pole, but well before that, and going well past Greece in the Middle East, the symbol for healing was a serpent on a pole. So if you understand what I'm saying, a vestige in our society today, there's a couple of EMTs in the room, right? You probably have on the side of your ambulance you know, a serpent on a pole. That's a vestige memory of this event that took place of Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness. It's interesting, compelling, I think compelling circumstantial evidence that even our culture still has a distant memory of uh, the serpent on the pole. There you go. Didn't know they had such Legos, but I guess they do. Biblical assertion. By the way, you realize we could do this for every chapter, just about every chapter. The only one I'm having a rough time with so far is Proverbs, but all the historical books, you can find extra biblical evidence to, uh, to support these things. 
Biblical assertion, Israelite spies encountered giants in the land of Canaan during the wilderness wanderings. Numbers 13. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land, which they had spied out, saying, The people whom we saw are men of great stature. There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak, or the Anakim, uh, that came from the giants. So here's the claim to be tested. What happened? Giants existed in the land of Canaan. When did this occur? Approximately 1444 B.C. It's within two years that they're bringing back this bad report of the Exodus. Where did this occur? Canaan, today's Israel. Who was involved? Canaanite tribes. Is there any evidence that giants existed in, in Canaan? The evidence is pretty overwhelming. This is called the Egyptian execration texts. Basically what the Egyptians used to do is they'd form little statues of their enemies and then they would break them to bring a curse from their gods upon their enemies. Well, the Egyptian execration texts, we've found them in Egypt, and they refer to, um, this goes back about 1700 B.C. So this is about 300 years before the Exodus took place. The Egyptian army is fighting a people referred to as the Li-Anek. The Li-Anek are the people from Anak in Egyptian. They're referring to the Anakim. In these Egyptian execration texts, by the way, you can go to a website called Ancient Egypt Online, not a biblical site, and they'll talk all about this. Um, they talk about how they're fighting the Li-Anek, and the Li-Anek are twice their height. In fact, they use this expression, we're like grasshoppers in their sights. I'm just going to show up in your Bible. Um, this is a great one. This is the Anastasi Papyrus. These are Egyptian soldiers. They're, they're um, in the supply corps. And in the papyrus, by the way, you can find this in the British Museum. It dates back 3,300 years, or about 1,300 or so BC. The document is sent from a senior army correspondent named Hori. And in the letter, he is reprimanding another soldier named Amenemope because he has poor leadership and doesn't keep good records. Now think about this. It's a letter from a senior commander to a junior commander. And one of the things that he says in this letter is, you're supposed to keep statistics for our army of how much supplies we have left. Oh, and by the way, the soldiers that you said we captured as spies you didn't correctly depict their height. And he goes on to say that you had them as being a foot taller than they really were. Their height is only nine feet. And think about it. It's in the context of one soldier correcting another soldier on his need to be accurate. Pretty wild stuff, right? It's called the um, Anastasi Papyrus. You can see this in the British Museum. This is the Ramesses II relief. This is about 1290 or so BC, if I recall the date right. And this is really interested, um, again, uh, Egyptologists, because in the scene, they've captured two Shashu warriors. Shashu warriors are Canaanites. And in the depiction, here's the Egyptian army standing above these two Canaanite soldiers that they've captured. And the thing that is... Egyptologists have been baffled by is almost always when the Egyptians depict themselves in combat with other forces, they always present themselves as being bigger. It's like a psychological thing. They present themselves as being bigger than the forces they're fighting. But why here do they go out of their way to say that the people they caught 
are so much bigger. And you can see they're depicting these guys as if they're sitting down and they're almost as tall as the Egyptian army standing up. So again, it's lend credence to the idea that the Egyptian army is constantly running into combat in Jordan and up in Canaan against giants. Understand, it says nothing to do with your Bible. It just confirms what the Bible says that there were giants in the land of Canaan. Extra biblical evidence. Uh, and we have way more than this. Uh, evidence has been unearthed by archaeologists and paleontologists of people who appear to be of unusually tall stature, the Avim, the Rephaim, Amim, and the Zamzumim. Skeletal remains were unearthed in both Gezer, Israel, and Tel Sayadia in Jordan of people between 17 and 10 feet tall. So in other words, we found skeletons of people between 7 and 10 feet tall in uh, Israel and Jordan. All these different bits of evidence to suggest that giants did in fact exist. This is the worst Lego Bible one of all, because you can't even see them. There's David fighting Goliath. Last one, I want to tell you a story, a couple last ones. Um, biblical assertion, the walls of Jericho collapsed, which enabled Israel to conquer the Amorite stronghold, which was Jericho. The city was then set aflame by the Israelites, but was not looted. So Joshua 6, 20 and 24, it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat. Then the people went up into Jericho and they took the city. They burned the city and all that was in it with fire. Okay, here's a question for you. If they left Israel, I'm sorry, if the Israelites left Egypt in 1446 B.C., they travel in the wilderness for 40 years, right? Wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. So when would they be conquering Jericho? About 1406, 1405 B.C., right? Well, wouldn't you know it? By the way, archaeologists learned their trade in Jericho. This is David Livingston, founder of Associates of Biblical Research. Archaeologists cut their teeth in Jericho. Jericho is a disaster from an archaeological standpoint. We hadn't perfected the idea of creating archaeological squares, how you dig down through a layer of, of dirt while leaving other parts untouched. It's almost like archaeologists taught themselves scientific needs, technique, scientific techniques at the expense of Jericho because Jericho is a mashed up mess. However, one of the things that's real striking about Jericho is when you're digging down through the different layers, you consistently find burn layer. That's a carbon burn layer. You know what's good about a carbon burn layer? What can you do with a carbon burn layer? You can carbon date it. So if we say that Jericho was burned in 1406, 1405 BC, what should that carbon burn layer date to? 1406, 1405 B.C. What does it date to? 1406, 1405 B.C. Great confirmatory evidence. Physical evidence showing that Jericho was conquered by fire, just like the Bible says. And by the way, when we uh, went digging down, we found granaries filled with grain uh, that had not been consumed, just like God had instructed the Israelites not to loot the city. I think these things look like Martians to me. And what in the world, does that look like dragons on the mercy seat? Or vultures? By the way, you know, people always, um, one of the big gripes against the Bible, the God of the Bible, is the conquest. I've had it said to me, um, you know, how could God be a loving God if he tells the Israelites to go in and conquer Canaan and slaughter every man, woman, child? You understand, if there was anybody who professed faith in the God of Israel... What happened to them? 
Let me change the question. Did the two spies who went into Jericho bring back any actionable intelligence about Jericho to Joshua? Joshua sends him into Jericho, and he's trying to figure out, what am I up against here, right? But biblically speaking, why were those two spies sent in from God's standpoint? They were there to save Rahab. And why were they there to save Rahab? Because she had already come to faith in the God of Israel. She said, we've heard about all that your God did, and He is God. And God doesn't dare allow the Israelites to dare touch her. A great argument, I think, for pre-wrath rapture, rapture of the church before the tribulation, is God is not going to pour judgment out upon His own people. But you find this again and again and again, where God gives people an opportunity for repentance, and if they repent, He saves them. And um, anyway, it's a subject for more and more, but um, anyway, we've got to see the walls collapse. There are the angry Israelites. Hey, you want to see the, uh, the Amorites get slaughtered? I know that you do. There we go. <laughs> yeah. Tasty. Last one, and then I'm going to tell you a little story about my experience I had once. Uh, biblical assertion, the Israelites... The Hebrew nation conquer the promised land and force out many of the Canaanites. So Joshua conquered all the land, the mountain country in the south and the lowland and the wilderness slopes and all their kings. And Joshua conquered them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen even as far as Gibeon. Biblical claim to be tested. What happened? Canaan was conquered by Israel. When did this occur? In the 1300s. Where did this occur? Land of Canaan, today is Israel. Who was involved? The Israelites and the Canaanites. Let me show you this. This is called the Amarna Tablets. 30,000 of these things have been unearthed. Oh. 300 of these things have been unearthed. <laughs> A little off of my decimal point. 300 of these tablets have been unearthed. They were discovered in 1887 in Amarna, Egypt, along the Nile River between Memphis and Thebes. They're military correspondences between Amenhotep IV, the son of Amenhotep III, four generations, uh, four rulers removed from... Uh, the Exodus. And in this correspondence, a Canaanite king by the name of Abdi-Heba, Abdi-Heba is desperately pleading with Pharaoh to send him help because something is happening to his land. Let's read it. All the local rulers are lost. Not a single ruler remains to the king, the Lord. Let the king turn his attention to the archers so that the archery troops of the king, my Lord, go forth. None of the king's lands remain. He's basically saying to Pharaoh, look, Send me archers. I need your help desperately because the Apiru have plundered all the king's land. Apiru is a Canaanite way of saying the Abiru or the Hebrews. He's basically acknowledging that they're being invaded by the Hebrews. And even now he's saying, if you could at least send your archery troops this year, then the lands of the king, my lord, will survive. But if the archery troops do not arrive, then the lands of the king, my lord, are lost. They're paying tribute to Egypt. They're hoping Egypt will come and defend them. And Egypt says... No chance. We've already dealt with them. We dealt with their God. We're not helping you out. That's extra biblical evidence that the conquest by the Hebrew people took place just like the book of Joshua says. Your Bible's a reliable book of history. And when you read it, you want to read it that way. 
And I'll tell you a little story. We've got seven minutes left. So um, a couple of years ago, I was preaching down at Horton Haven uh, in Tennessee. Dave and I bookend Horton Haven. He does the last week. I do the first week. And I went from Horton Haven down to Birmingham, Alabama. And that year, if you remember those tornadoes in Alabama, and uh, they were doing, the assemblies down there were doing a big outreach to Birmingham. So um, I'd come in to preach on the weekend. So I preached at Horton Haven Sunday through Saturday, Birmingham Saturday and Sunday, and then flew out to Texas Sunday night so I could preach at Sandy Creek Bible Camp through the following Saturday. So I was exhausted. You know, two weeks going nonstop, about two or three messages a day. Never did that before in my life. Never do it again. But um, it, was, uh, it was an interesting time. Anyway, by the end of the second week, I'm exhausted. And um, the Saturday morning, um, my flight is leaving out of Houston. I don't know if it's Hobby or George, Washington, George W. Bush. I forget the airport. But I was leaving out of Houston and um, exhausted, so I... I took my car, I'd rented it out of, the Houston, uh, out of the Houston airport, and drove in quick and wanted to get on this 940 flight that was going to go to LaGuardia, take me home, and it was going to fly through Atlanta. So um, anyway, I get there, and I'm real tired, and I'm having this whole thought of, I really, really hope that nobody sits next to me. You know, you're on flights, you really don't want to have a conversation. I mean, I shouldn't say this, right? I don't want to talk to anybody. I just want to go to sleep on the flight, fly out to Atlanta, then I knew there was a yogurt place I wanted to go eat and had ice cream in Atlanta, and I was going to fly to New York. That's all I'm thinking about. So I said, when I get on my seat, I'm going to do this thing. So nobody wants to talk to me. What a, what a disaster. So I'm sitting down, and this Vietnam vet and his wife get on the plane, and they're on either side of the aisle. And he's sitting next to him, and she's across the aisle sitting next to him. And he goes, hey, buddy, wake up. <laughs> How are you? My name's Dave. I'm like, I'm awake. <laughs> Your name's awake? Yeah. Um, this guy turned out to be a riot. It was a riot. And the flight turned out to be a riot. Um, so uh, he just starts talking to me. And once I learned he was a Vietnam vet, you know, instantly drawn to those guys. I want to talk to them, find out what their background was. And, and, uh, but I still want to go to sleep. But anyway, at a certain point, we're being held at the gate. And the pilot did one of the I, I say this is one of the dumbest things I've ever heard a pilot do. But he comes on, and as we're starting to taxi out, he goes, hey, I just want to apologize for the delay. But we were trying to argue with the control tower. See, we're about 15,000 pounds overweight. And um, the control tower didn't want to let us leave, but we've convinced them to let us leave. <laughs> so that's what starts happening. The plane starts laughing. Like, what are you? <laughs> so we don't know if he's joking or he's serious. Um, we start to taxi out. And uh, not only is this guy I'm sitting next to, all these great one-liners, but as the plane starts to take off, um, the strangest thing happened. Just as the plane is taken off, the, you know the air valves, you turn them, and you get air blown on yourself? Well, out of nowhere, they all start gushing water. It's raining in the plane. And, um, of course, the guy sitting next to me with all these one-liners, he goes, I knew I should have brought my umbrella. And... Um, <laughs> So the plane takes off, and it does this. It, it's like a roller coaster. And this thing is having all sorts of trouble. And it's going up, and then it's slipping. It's going up, and then it's slipping. And then it's going like this, and it's slipping. So um, everybody's really paying attention. 
And at a certain point, the flight attendant, she would have beat O.J. Simpson in a 40-yard dash. She flies down the center aisle, racing full bore to the back of the plane. And of course, the guy sitting next to me goes, you don't see that every day. You know, <laughs> racing to the back. Then she comes racing back up front. Then the next thing, and I don't know when this took place, but I guess the co-pilot busts open that door. Smoke starts billowing out of the cockpit. And he goes on a full sprint back. And then he comes racing up. And uh, of course, the guy sitting next to me goes, I thought they said there was no smoking on this flight. So the flight attendant comes on and she goes, uh, ladies and gentlemen, you may have noticed that we're having some difficulty. Um, we're going to turn the plane around and try to make it back to Houston. So the plane shudders and shakes, right? By the way, this is a big plane. It's a Delta flight. It was an MDX 80 or something like that. But there's a couple hundred people on this thing. And it's heading from Houston to Atlanta. And since I'm flying tomorrow, I really should stop telling the story. But um, So at a certain point, the plane is having all sorts of trouble. The captain comes on. And he says, ladies and gentlemen, we're not going to make it back to Houston. We're at 11,000 feet right now, and I can't get this plane to go any higher. In fact, I've got the engines revved up, and we're still not gaining altitude. I'm going to land this aircraft wherever I can. So here's what I want you to understand. We're about to go from 11,000 feet to 2,000 feet, and we're going to do it in about a minute. So understand, some of you are going to feel what feels like the bends. You're going to have your eardrums burst. You're going to have blood shoot out of your This is a guy telling us this, right? The pilot says, you're going to have blood shooting out of your ears. Some of you are going to feel like you're cramping up in the stomach, but I want you to understand this. I have full control of the aircraft. <laughs> so then, while all this is going on, the Vietnam vet's Dave's wife, who's basically been quiet this entire time, she says, this reminds me of the time you took us on our honeymoon. <laughs> and so now everybody who's frantic starts listening to this conversation, like, where did you take her on honeymoon? She goes, he took me to Hanoi, or to Saigon. And, um, yeah, Saigon. Apparently he was an embassy guard. And on their honeymoon, he flew her out with him. I mean, can you imagine? It was 1968, right before the Tet Offensive. He takes her to Saigon. Um, when the embassy overrun, so anyway. Um, so the pilot starts to bank the plane. And he goes in the steep right angle. And he is dropping like a stone. And he's circling. And I'm sitting there thinking, okay, where's he going to land this? You know, and is he going to land on a highway? And, and what I found out later on, by the way, I survived, in case you can figure this out. <laughs> but I found out later on that the... Um, when a plane is having major mechanical difficulties, the FAA clears the area. And they basically say, you're authorized to land the craft wherever you can. Because there's more people on the plane than anybody on the roads. Right? So anyway, as this plane is doing this deep bank, sure enough, uh, didn't happen to me, but there's, <laughs> there's stuff coming out of ears that I'll, you can figure it out. right? Uh, so the plane is doing this steep bank. And I'm looking out the window. And this couple next to me, totally calm. That's like nothing. you know doing the steep bank, and I'm looking, and I see one highway. I said, he's going for the highway, you know. Well, it turned out the FAA had directed him to a little Piper Cub jet runway, 800 feet long. They said, land this thing there. 
So the pilot, and this is the conversation he's having, not over the intercom, this I found out later, but the pilot is saying this aircraft normally takes, I think it was 2,200 feet to land. And, he, and so the, the FAA, the air traffic controller says to him, you got a choice, land short or land long. There's a wheat field around this runway. So the pilot makes a decision, I'm going to have the wheat field take the full impact of the plane landing, I'm going to skip it up onto the runway. Because it'll be easier for Delta Airlines. I'm glad he was concerned about what was easy for Delta Airlines. <laughs> it will be easier for Delta Airlines to get the plane out of the runway than out of the cornfield. So he made the decision to land in the cornfield and then skip it up onto the runway. He was great. He was terrific plane hits the corn stalks shooting up all over the place, or whatever it was, I presume it was grain or corn stalks, wheat. Plane skips out, lands on the runway, comes to a perfect stop, right? Turned out the guy was a C-47 pilot for the Air Force, our Delta pilot. Now here's my point. We started off this whole series talking about there's such a thing as truth and untruth, right? There's such a thing as reality and things that aren't real. The point I want to leave you with, because most of the world is not buying that when it comes to religion, certainly not in the Western world, they don't want to accept the idea that there's exclusive truth. But truth is exclusive. It's either true or it's not. The point I want to leave you with is this. It doesn't matter whether you believe it's true. It's still true. The only thing that's going to matter is whether you accept the truth for you. See, if I didn't believe that plane was going to crash, and it crashed, it would have crashed. You understand? Gravity was still at work. The laws of gravity were still at work grabbing that how many tons of metal and sucking it down to the earth. Gravity was still at work whether I believed it was at work or not. The same thing is true with biblical truth. This book is true. It's true whether you believe it or not. The only thing you can impact by your belief, the only thing you can impact by your belief is what? Is where you're going to go. If you believe this is true in the central message, which is as Christ died on the cross for you, and you must believe that in order to be saved, if you believe that, you can determine where you're going to grow, and you can land safely on the runway. If you don't believe it, if you don't believe it, the only thing you're going to impact by not believing it is not the truth of this. The only thing you're going to impact is where you go, and you're going to be left in the cornfield. So believe it. It's an authenticated message from God himself. Let's look to the Lord in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Bible, which is truth. We thank you, Father, that it's not my truth. It's not Julio's truth. It's not Dave's truth. It's not Lisa's truth. It's your truth, which means it is true. We thank you, Father, that you've given us the truth and that we can look on the pages of Scripture and, uh, and know that what we're reading is truth. As the scripture says, thy word is truth. So Father, I pray if there's someone here who has never put their trust in Jesus Christ, that they would understand that this truth is conveyed to them so that they could be saved. Father, we pray that you'd be convicted as such. Pray a blessing upon this assembly now as we depart. Help everyone to get home safely. We pray, Father, this meeting would continue to grow and that it might grow closer together even as they walk closer with thee. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.